Amen. It's good to be in the house of the Lord singing his praises together. I want to preach this morning from 2 Samuel chapter 7 on the theme of what to do when God seems to be closing a door. What to do when God closes a door? What do you do when, when it seems like God refuses to let you accomplish something that you wanted to accomplish? Uh, there was something on your heart, a good thing, and for whatever reason, it has been withheld. God has seemed to be withholding a certain blessing that you wanted to lay hold of. What do you do when God says no? Uh, this touches where a lot of people are at. They've got something on their heart, something they feel like would be a good thing, and, the, and their motives are good, and yet God has withheld it. God has said no. Are you in 2 Samuel chapter 7? Meet me in 2 Samuel 7, and you'll see this is a passage where King David wants to do something good for God. And it checks all the right boxes. I mean, his heart is in the right place. It's a beautiful thing. You'll know 2 Samuel is where he, he wants to build a house for the Lord. God tells him no. He's not going to be able to do it. Let's check it out. 2 Samuel 7 verse 1. Now, when the king lived in his house... And the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. Now, that verse may not mean much to you, but for those, if you're just joining us, that may not mean much. But for those of us who've been in this series in First and Second Samuel, that's about the first time we've been able to catch our breath with old David. Right? I mean, we've seen this guy through caves, the lion, the bear, big old giant named Goliath. He's had to fight the Philistines. He's had to uh, lie about who he was when he was in the Philistine country. He's got it uh, uh, coming at him from all different sides, even his own wife in the last chapter, right? Things are not good at home. The guy has no peace. And finally here, <sighs> he's finally at peace. And he can just have a cup of coffee with his pastor on the back porch. And that's where he is in verse 2. The king said to Nathan the prophet, isn't that great? He's out having a cup of coffee with his pastor. He looks around, he thinks about all that the Lord has done for him. And he says, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. You see where he's going with this. He looks around, he thinks, I I'm in the cedar palace. This is untold luxury. In fact, it was built for him for free by a neighboring king who was no doubt trying to curry favor. Builds him for free. Here you go. Here's the keys. Brought in all the great craftsmen, and they came from a land where there was this great cedar. So he has this cedar-lined palace. And David is sitting in there enjoying it, and he's looking around, and he's going, hey, this is, this is great and all, but we've just brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And now the Ark, which symbolizes the presence of God is in a tent. Now, it's a fancy tent. We call it the tabernacle. But this thing's hundreds of years old, and it's a glorious tent. And you can read in the Torah about all the ways they built this tent, and then all the glory. But it's still a tent. And by now, it's probably a little threadbare. Think about all it's been through in the wilderness, hundreds of years old. It's probably a little moldy. And here, David is enjoying all this luxury, and he looks around, and he says what? That ain't right. Says, that ain't right. How am I in this beautiful cedar line palace in the ark of God in a tent? And so in verse 3, David, uh, excuse me, Nathan says to David what any minister would say when a wealthy donor says, I want to make a huge donation for a building program. Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Drop off the check and let's get going, right? 
says, no, that's a good thing. Nathan approves. That's a great thing you're doing. Wonderful. But that very night, Nathan is tossing and turning. Look at verse 4. And God says, no. That same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. And this begins a passage where I'll go ahead and summarize for you. He's going to tell him, tell David no. And later in verse 17, we get the word that Nathan told David everything perfectly, just as it came from the Lord. So he was a good prophet, and he did. Uh, some theologians would say that right there is proof of God's existence, that a minister told this wealthy donor, no, keep your money. So that, that proves there is a God. Go and tell my servant. So this is what the Lord says. Go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? You're not going to be able to do this great thing you want to do for the Lord. Now, what do you do when God closes the door, when you're met with disappointment, something good you want to do for God? Well, this text, we're going to see three things. First, your faith will be tested. Second, God will remind you of some things. And third, going forward, you'll need his promise. There's your outline. Your faith will be tested. God will remind you of some things. That's what happens to David. And going forward, you'll need his promises. Uh, Credit to Pastor Colin Smith. He's a pastor out of the Chicago area who pointed this out about your faith will be tested. He pointed out that David had the right concern, glory for God. He had the right goal, building a temple. That's a good thing. He had a right heart. His motives were pure. And he had the right process. He didn't just tear off and do it. He consulted with the prophet Nathan. So what do you do if if you, you long for that promotion at work, but it's withheld? Uh, what if you long to make the team and you think, I would be such a good witness for Christ on the team, but you got cut and you didn't make the team? Or you long to be married and your motives are pure and yet that is withheld for you. Or, or, or you long to have children and you think you, we would make great parents. There's pain there too because you see God allowing that blessing to other people. Why not me? Maybe the Lord has laid on your heart some ministry or some good thing you want to do, but for whatever reason, the door seems to close, some mission trip that it fell through or some great thing. What do you do? Well, your faith will be tested in a couple areas. One is how well you love God, and one is how well you love others. What do I mean? Here, David's faith is going to be tested. How well do you really love me? Do you really love God? If you really love God, you'll love him. Watch this. You'll love him just as much if you get to do the thing or not because you don't ultimately love the thing you're getting to do or not. You love the Lord, right? So your faith, you you love, in other words, you love God, not just his gifts, not just what he allows you to do, but you love him. Uh, None of us are 100% there yet. And how well you love others. Think about it. David's going to learn that it's his son Solomon who's going to get to build the temple. But that was on his heart to do. He wanted to do that. We learn later in 1 Chronicles, he wasn't able to do that because he was a man of blood. He was a man of war. All the Philistines haven't yet been driven out of the land. The time for building is not the time of war. It's a time of peace. David had to be the man of war so that Solomon could be, during that man of peace, build the temple. Isn't that something? D- David had to fulfill what God had for him in his time, not so he could get to do the thing he wanted to, but so the next generation could. Well, that's going to test how well you love others. Think about it. If it's truly for the kingdom, if it's truly for the glory of God, then it shouldn't matter whether I get that blessing of doing it or whether another church down the street gets that blessing or whether another person gets that blessing. If it's truly for the kingdom, right, I should truly love others. 
And I wouldn't have that envy or jealousy. Why did they get to do that? Why is that withheld from me and not from them? Once again, none of us is there yet. So it tests our faith. And I have to assume it tested David's faith. And just like with David, this is the second point in the outline, God will remind you of some things. God will remind you of some things. He reminds David specifically of two things. The first is a, a sort of a, a fancy word. He, he gives him the incarnational principle and the grace principle. Let me explain. He reminds him of two things. The first is just the incarnational, that, that, that God is with him. He reminds him, God is with you. God dwells with his people. So you're going to build me a house, David? Look at verse 6. <laughs> I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people, with all the people of Israel. Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, there's a couple things to note here. One is just downright funny. Uh, God is using a little irony here with David. And he's saying, David, David, do you think I'm offended that I, the Lord of the universe, can't seem to upgrade to a cedar house? <laughs> you know something, David? The reason I'm not offended that I can't upgrade into a cedar house, <laughs> who do you think makes cedars? <laughs> See, David, when they come to your palace, they say, I love what you've done with the cedars. When they come to my house, they say, I like cedars. <laughs> See the difference? So first of all, don't you sweat the fact that well, I'm not up here in heaven short on cash, and I wish I had a wealthy donor to help me out. No, 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 no. So that's the first thing he says. Stop and think about it. But the, more importantly, uh, and, and, and this, this is really breathtaking when you think about it. He's saying, uh, he's saying Nathan, go ask David. Uh, let me ask you something. When, it, when my people, when my people Israel were wandering in a tent, when they were wandering about in the desert, where was I? I was in a tent right there with him. Think long and hard about a God who would say to his people, until you're at rest, I'm not at rest either. Until everybody gets safely home, I don't consider myself to be safely home either. The picture of God as a nomad, a pilgrim, a homeless wanderer in the desert is staggering. You don't have to wait till the little baby born in a manger in Bethlehem to see the condescension of our heavenly God, the, the coming down, the being with his people. And for everyone who's hearing my voice who would say, I don't know why God has closed this door, let the first thing you hear from God remind you, God is with you. He may not give every explanation, he may not give every answer, but he gives you his presence. And second, he reminds David, via Nathan, of the grace principle. What do I mean by that? Verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, <laughs> from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. That's a good word. He's saying, go back to the place where I first found you. I, I, I took you, David. You don't need to be taking me from place to place. I take you. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. David, you're worried about missing out on so much. But have you forgotten my grace? It's not what you're going to do for me. It's what I'm going to do through you. 
And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. What a beautiful promise. I'm going to take care of you, David. I'm going to give you a throne, and I am going to plant the people safely in the land. From the time that I appointed, verse 11, judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. And then he does this incredible play on words. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. See, what started this whole conversation was David saying, I, well, implying, I'm going to build a house for the Lord. And here, David is told, no, the Lord's going to build a house for you. It's a play on words. We actually, it's good because the, the, the word house is used the same way in English. David means, I'm going to make a house for the Ark of the Covenant, meaning a, a temple or a, probably a temple, a, a palace of some sort, a house to house the Ark of the Covenant. And, and God tells David, no, I, I, I'm going to build you a house, meaning a dynasty. We still use it that way with the royal, you know, the house of Windsor or whatever, right? So here, you're going to have this royal dynasty. Now, why do I call this the grace principle? It's a reminder for anybody who feels this morning something's being withheld from them. Find your joy in his grace. What do I mean? Find your joy in who he is, not in what you think you need to attempt for somehow God to be fulfilled. I can illustrate this from the New Testament in Luke 10. Uh, Remember, Jesus sends out the disciples, and they come back. They have had such success on their mission, they come back fired up. And they're like, Jesus, you won't believe this kind of power. (laughs) And they tell them about all the stuff they were able to do in the name of Jesus. They said, even the spirits were subject to us. In other words, we were able to cast out demons. We were able to have this incredible spiritual power. It was incredible what we were able to do. And you remember what Jesus says to them in Luke 10, 20? Rejoice not that the spirits are subject to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In other words, let the greatest thing about your Christian life not be all that you get to do for God, Let it be all that God has done for you. See, when you anchor your joy, when you realize my joy is not in that I may get to do this or I may get to do that, that that's so fleeting. Uh, Things come and go. Disappointments come and go. Doors open and close. But my joy is not whether I was able to do this or do that. My ultimate joy is that my name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You're in the center of his grace. So for anybody who feels like, but I'm going to miss out on so much, and, and I'm, I'm, I, this door's closed, and what happens if that door closes? Whoa, whoa, whoa. You find your joy in his grace. And that leads to the last point of the outline. Going forward, okay, you'll need his promise. Going forward, you'll need his promise. What God does next is staggering. He gives a promise. In these next few verses, he gives a promise to David. And the Bible word for this moment in Scripture is the word covenant. Covenant. You've seen it. He made a covenant with Noah. He made a covenant with Abraham. He made a covenant with uh, Moses and the people of Israel. And here he makes this covenant with David, the Davidic covenant. A covenant in the Bible is an unchangeable, divinely imposed, unchangeable, divinely imposed, this is God's idea, legal agreement between God and man that will define their relationship. You want me to define it one more time? 
A covenant in the Bible is an unchangeable, divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that will define their relationship. I can summarize for you all the covenants in the Old Testament. They can all be summarized like this. They have different forms. You remember with Noah and, and, and the one with Abraham? But they all boil down to this. I will be their God and they will be my people. That's, that, and there's all stipulations and there's all different signs in each of those. But that's what it all fundamentally boils down to. So God makes this covenant with David. I don't know if you're familiar with 2 Samuel chapter 7. I don't know, if I asked you to list, what are the 10, you know when you look at a city skyline, you don't see every house, you see those magnificent buildings, those skyscrapers that stand above, right? So when you look at a skyline, if I said to you, what's the skyline of the Holy Bible? Tell me the skyline. Just give me the, maybe, maybe the top 10. You might go to Genesis 1, God created everything, Genesis 3, the fall of man and the promise that one day the seed of the woman's gonna crush that old serpent. Oh, you might go to Abraham, and God's coming to Abraham. You definitely got to go to the, to the Passover, right? God getting them out of Egypt into the promised land. Exile, New Testament, Christ is born, Romans 8. I mean, come on, Romans 8, you know. Uh, and then, you know, let's wrap it up. New Jerusalem, Revelation. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, would 2 Samuel 7 break your top 10? It struck me this week how many, like, theologians all these biblical scholars, and the more I thought about it, the more I think they're right. John Woodhouse, Walter Brueggemann, many of them say 2 Samuel 7 may contain the most important words in the history of the Old Testament. There's people that go so far to say, you won't really appreciate and get excited about Jesus when he comes as king in the New Testament. You won't really get excited unless you know 2 Samuel 7. I'm sitting there reading that going, well, do I know 2 Samuel 7? (laughs) What's going on here? In these verses, you're about to hear a promise, a covenant, where God promises there will be a Davidic king. Uh, In other words, a king from the royal lineage, the line of David, on the throne forever. Forever. It looks into the eternity future and says, you know this rest that I've given you, David? You know how you're able to have coffee with Nathan in your cedar line palace? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to plant your people, and there's going to be that kind of rest because that's the kind of rest you get. When there's a godly king on the throne, that's the kind of rest that people can enjoy. I want that for my people forever. So I'm going to put a king on the throne forever, and it's going to come from your lineage, settled in the land, fruitful. Death won't be able to stop this covenant. Death won't be able to stop it. Sin won't be able to spoil it, and time won't be able to diminish it. There will be a king from the line of David on the throne forever. So let's look at it. Verses 12 through 16. Here it is. This is the famous Davidic covenant. Verse 12. When your days are fulfilled, (laughs) I love this is where he starts because David's first thought is, well, you can make a covenant with me, but what happens when I die? Will it end with me? What legacy will I leave? When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name. Ah, okay, so, so it's Solomon. In other words, you'll see some of these verses can only apply to Solomon and there's no way they could apply to Jesus. Others could only apply to Jesus and there's no way they could apply to Solomon. Here you have uh, uh, in one verse, if you look carefully at verse 13, 
prophecy always does this in the Old Testament, like a telescopic lens. It zooms in and zooms out really, really quickly. If you think about a mountain range far off in the distance, it looks like one wall of mountains. As you get closer, do you realize these mountains can be separated by hundreds and hundreds of miles? So too, when a prophet, uh, when prophecy is given in the Old Testament, that particular genre uh, is often the case that it looks like one instantaneous prophet, prophecy when in fact there could be hundreds or in this case a thousand years separating. And it happens right here in verse 13. He shall build a house for my name. Okay, Solomon's going to build the temple. But I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Well, Solomon didn't live forever. Hmm, what's going on? Let's keep reading. So David hears that and he goes, okay, uh, 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 so the kingdom will be in the hands of my son Solomon, but what if my son, what if my son messes up? What if, what if he, he breaks this covenant? What if, I mean, if I'm dead, who will be a father to him? Who will be a father to my son? To which God, of course, knows, David, it won't take till Solomon. Uh, you'll mess up big time yourself here in a few chapters. So let me tell you something about a father's love. Verse 14. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Now, this is an incredible promise. He's saying, David, I know you're worried about what's going to happen to your future legacy. I know you're worried about your son, especially if you're gone. I'm going to be a father to him, and I'm a good father. And that means a couple things. That means when he runs away, the worst thing I could do is let him go. What would a loving father do if that son is on a deadly path, a deadly sinful path? What would any, even any father in this room, what would you do if you knew your child was headed for destruction? Your little kid was headed for destruction. You would discipline that child, wouldn't you? And you would do whatever it takes to bring him back. Now, that's an incredible promise. He's saying, I will do whatever is necessary. And if the sin rises, the discipline will rise. Because I'm not just going to let him go. But here's the promise underneath that. The one thing I won't do is remove my steadfast love. Now, that's a word for you, Christian. If you're a child of God, listen carefully. If you are right now in rebellion to God, if you are living in sin, you need to know God will do whatever it takes to bring you back. So repent now and don't make it any harder on yourself than it has to be. Fair? Because he's coming after with the discipline and the stripes of the sons of men. Why would he do that? You'd say, what would you have a loving God do? So he's getting your attention. He's drawing you back. So repent now. Don't make it any harder. Because here's his promise. The one thing he won't do is just let you go. Why? Verse 15. My steadfast love will not depart. I'm not, take, I'm not taking away my steadfast love from these kids. And I like not if, but when. My point is simply this. Death cannot annul the covenant of God, and sin cannot cancel it. And now the prophecy zooms out from Solomon to the ages. And now there's no doubt this verse 16 can only be about Jesus. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. I think that verse right there is what puts this in the skyline of the scriptures. 2 Samuel 7, there is an unbreakable promise made from God to David. Someone from your throne will reign forever. Death can't end it. Sin can't spoil it. And time cannot diminish it. That's the key word, forever. <laughs> so, 
you have to figure out what to do with that verse, your throne will be established forever. Either that means there will always literally be a, 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 a descendant of ethnic Israel seated on a throne throughout Israel's history forever, and that line will never be broken. And it obviously can't be that. In, in 586 BC, you have the Babylonians coming in the last king we see is Zedekiah. So the alternative would be there's one descendant of David who will have a forever and eternal rule. And it's interesting that even in the Old Testament, they, they understand it to be that latter meaning. Even in the Old Testament, they're saying, no, 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 what we're looking for is this one anointed ruler who will come from David, who is Messiah. And that promise right there, 2 Samuel 16, 7, on that covenant promise that he's going to plant the people in the land and a descendant of David will be on the throne, this becomes the theological crisis of the rest of the Old Testament. It is not overstatement to say (laughs) that this is, the, the whole rest of the Old Testament is dealing with this theological crisis. How can this be true? Because what happens is, of course, the kings that follow David do not obey the covenant. They break the covenant. The last king is, uh, like I said, Zedekiah. You got the Babylonians coming. They, they, they burn Jerusalem to the ground, so there's no throne. They're in exile. The people are most certainly not planted in the, uh, in the promised land. They're over here in exile in Babylon. And so they're looking around going, you promised, God, you promised. In 2 Samuel seven sixteen. you said there would be a king over Israel, people planted in the land, and that that king would reign forever. Well, there certainly is not a descendant of David on the throne, it seems. Have God's promises failed? Has the covenant promise of God been broken? The whole rest of the Old Testament is really, if you you want to sum it up from 2 Samuel 7 on through the rest of the Old Testament, it's really wrestling with that question. And I would like to, in just two minutes or less, trace the entire rest of the Bible in that question. Think we can do it? Children of God are in exile. Let's fast forward hundreds of years from that moment. They're in exile. What do they do? The house of David is promised. The Old Testament thinks long and hard about that promise to the throne of David. Watch how many times you see the throne of David. And so what does God do? God sends a prophet named Isaiah. And what does Isaiah say in chapter 9? You know it from heart. For unto us a child is born. Watch this. Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Wait for it. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. That's 2 Samuel 7. He's quoting. He's looking back on the covenant promise of God and saying, unto us a child is born. When you think unto us a child is born, it is hinged upon 2 Samuel 7. That's why all these Old Testament scholars are saying, unless you know God's covenant to David, none of these things will be electrified for you. Once you see God's covenant to David, you see it everywhere you look. He's saying, that, that's it. There it. God has not given up on his promise. To which the people say, well, we don't believe it. Because you look around. And we're over here in exile, so Isaiah tries again. In chapter 11, he says, no, I know you've been chopped down, but from this stump, there will come a shoot, the root of Jesse's boy. Keeps going back. David, it's going to happen. God hadn't forgotten his promise. To which the people say, well, we don't believe it. 
So God sends him Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah 33, he speaks to the people in exile. Watch his exact wording. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Verse 17, for thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Jeremiah 33, he's quoting 2 Samuel 7. They were obsessed with uh, 2 Samuel 7 and God's covenant to David. In fact, he uses a little poetic language. And in the, I think it's two, uh, three verses in verse 20, thus says the Lord, here's how sure my covenant is. That promise I made to David, here's the deal. There's always going to be a king from the David's line on the throne. Here's the deal. I'll tell, tell you how you could break the covenant. If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, will be broken, so that he will not have a son on his throne. Right? You see what he's saying? I tell you what, human, if you're powerful enough tonight, when's when's the sun going to set tonight? It's about September, what are we, in fall? Whenever the sun's going to set, if you can prevent that, then you've got something to worry about. Oh, you can't, you're powerless to prevent that, aren't you? Yeah. So, so, So look up in the heavens if you need a little reminder about Who's in charge? I will not forget that covenant, David. And the people respond, we don't believe you. Now, how do I say the people respond that? Psalm 89 records their lament. They hear all this stuff, and they say, Psalm 89, 34, I will not, God said I won't violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I've sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. Here it is. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. And they're thinking of whatever Jeremiah said. They're like, didn't didn't that preacher Jeremiah say something like, like the moon, it'll be established forever? To which Jeremiah's like, eh, close enough. (laughs) A faithful witness in the skies. So see, they're saying, we remember all this. We remember 2 Samuel 7. The problem is, it's not happening. Look at the rest of the psalm. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? And they got one question. Where, Lord? Where is your steadfast love of old? Here we are in exile. We're in pain. Every door we thought should open has closed right in our face. And we just got one question. Where's 2 Samuel 7, Lord? Where's your steadfast love of old? By which your faithfulness you swore to David. Now there's somebody in here who needs to hear this. You say, God, I used to be so close to you. You used to be so good to my family. You were so good to my grandparents' generation. You're so good to my great-grandparents. Where are you, Lord? Where are you in my life? What about those doors that are closing to me? Do you, do you remember your promises or not? Here's what they're saying. Do you remember your faithfulness that you swore to David? You swore this to David. This was your idea. And so for, after the last prophet Malachi, which is still reminding the people, you've sinned, you've sinned. God is still faithful. He promised he's going to put a king on the throne to David. He's going to put a king on the throne to David. 400 years after the prophet Malachi, now they don't even have a word from the Lord. You know there's 400 years of silence between Malachi And now they're wondering, maybe we misunderstood the promise. Maybe his promises were only good for an old generation. Maybe they have nothing to do with us. Maybe we just miscalculated. And then one night, an angel appears to a nervous teenage Jewish girl who's planning her wedding. (laughs) She's engaged to be married. 
And the angel says to Mary in Luke 1, of all the things the angel could have said, you guessed it, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And he will be the answer to what the whole Old Testament has been pointing toward. The Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And I don't know if Gabriel used a microphone, but if he did, he would have dropped it. <laughs> Prophecy made, and think about all that it's been through. Prophecy kept in your womb. He will reign forever and ever. Well, the rest just writes itself. Once you start seeing this son of David fulfillment stuff, you see it everywhere. Sure enough, the people are starting to talk as Jesus grows up. Is this the second Samuel 7 coming anointed one of David? What do the poor and the sick and the blind cry out when Jesus passes by? What do they cry out? Son of David, have mercy on me. The word on the street starts to spread. You know, I heard he was born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem, that's the city of David. <laughs> you think? Uh, uh, remember in Matthew chapter 12, he healed, Jesus heals a demon-possessed man. And in Matthew 12, 23, look at what they ask. The people were amazed and they said, yo, can this be the son of David? Is this it? Is this the fulfillment? And then at the triumphal entry, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, David's capital city, what were the exact words of the cries of the crowd? Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. He's crucified on the third day. He's risen again. He's ascended. He is right now seated on the throne. You got that? There is a Davidic from the line of David, all the genealogies trace back. In fact, Matthew 1.1, it takes him exactly one verse in the New Testament to realize he's the son of David. All that, he's on the throne forever and ever. And then at the end of the Bible, in Revelation, this true and better David, Jesus Messiah, is installed as king forever. Revelation 11.15, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And you can't help but hear Handel's Messiah at this point, Right? And he shall reign for, there it is, right? He shall reign, what was the promise in 2 Samuel 7, 16? He shall reign forever. And the very last page of the Bible, Jesus sort of signs off on the book of Revelation. I love how he identifies himself. Revelation 22, 16. This is four verses from the very end of the Bible. I said we'd get to the end. We got four verses shy. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches, I am the root and the descendant of David. Case closed. The whole Bible tells one story. God is a God who will keep his promise, and he will stop at nothing to fulfill this promise. I will be their God. They will be my people. Death cannot stop it. Sin cannot spoil it. Time cannot diminish it. Now, to everyone who would say, well, that's... Uh, that's good for David. <laughs> David got to hear this incredible promise. Uh, doors keep closing in my life. 
You may think, what, uh, what promise has he made to me? Well, that's the best part. Um, because Jesus is the true and better David who reigns forever and ever. He is the king. He's the Lord Supreme. Christians believe that Jesus was not only man, right, born of a virgin, also God. Jesus was fully God and fully man. So watch this. Jesus can then do what only God can do. He can mediate as king, right, as the fulfillment of this old covenant. He can mediate a new covenant. Now, this didn't come out of nowhere. Jeremiah 31, we skipped over it pretty fast. We, did, we were trying to go through the entire Old Testament. In Jeremiah 31, he says, Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant. Hmm? And uh, it won't be like the old covenant. I'm going I'm to write my law on their hearts, right? And so you get, it's incredible, you get all of these promises applied to David, we now realize are applied to us in Jesus Christ. You say, how do I know? How do I know that death won't break the promise? How do I know that sin won't spoil it? How do I know that time won't make it fade? On the night he was betrayed, Jesus did the most incredible thing. He did what he did for, he did what he did for David. I mean, imagine David that night, hearing this incredible promise, nothing, nothing, nothing can stop my love for you. He did in 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, on the night he was betrayed, Jesus, in Luke 22, he did for you what God did for David through Nathan all those many years ago. He instituted a new covenant. Do you remember? Pass around the bread. He talks about the bread there at that Passover Seder. And then when he gets to the cup, he says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Parallels are staggering. Death could not end that covenant he made with David. Death could not end his covenant with you. Why? On the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. So death can't break it. Sin, what about David? He messed up. Solomon messed up. (laughs) Jesus, with his own blood, atoned for sin. Even sin can't spoil his promise to you. And what about time? This has been going on. No, 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 no. He shall reign forever and ever. Time cannot diminish it. And just like Noah got a sign of the covenant, the rainbow, and Abraham got a sign of the covenant, circumcision, and Moses, they, uh, Israel got a sign of the covenant, the royal priesthood, and the, 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 the law, and, and, and just like David got a sign of the covenant, the throne, we have signs of the covenant he's given us. And that's what we're doing today at the Lord's table. We're remembering God keeps his promises. Even when it feels like he's closing a door on me, God keeps his promises. Will you pray with me and prepare your heart for the Lord's table as we come to worship this promise-keeping covenant God. Heavenly Father, we give you praise for you are faithful and true and you stopped at nothing so that you could be our God and we would be your people. And thank you, Lord, that though we had sinned and the wages of sin is death. And though these promises are very old, death and sin and time cannot stop your promises. So for anybody who feels like a door is closed, let them be filled with fresh encouragement this morning as we receive these gifts from you. We pray this in Jesus' matchless name. Our King, amen.